Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. This guy, I think, was opportunistic. He was just dead lucky. He's picking up women and not getting caught. He was as lazy as they come. He, he just put their bodies in bushland and covered them with branches and things like that in a hurry. Somehow he's managed to get women to move across that line where they're heading for a bus stop or they're on a bus stop and the next thing they're in a car with someone they probably don't know. In August 2020, 88-year-old Melbourne man Harold Yarnman died, ending one avenue of investigation into a series of unsolved murders in the late 70s and early 80s. In episode 39 of Australian True Crime, we spoke to the childhood best friends of Catherine Headland. At 14 years of age, Catherine was abducted as she walked to the local bus stop in Berwick in Melbourne's outer southeast. Her remains were later discovered in bushland at Tainong North alongside those of 75-year-old Bertha Miller, who disappeared 18 days earlier. Bertha was last seen walking towards a tram stop on her way to church in Glen Iris, in Melbourne's Inner East. In all, the murders of six women are thought to be linked. They range in age, their abduction sites are scattered across a massive area of suburban Melbourne, they come from all walks of life, and they don't fit a single racial profile. Some of them were found naked and some fully clothed. The remains of most, but not all of them, were discovered around that same patch of bushland off a lonely stretch of the Princess Highway at Tainong North. Over the years, this case has been investigated by the best in the business. Many names you'd recognise have been back through the files, interviewed and re-interviewed people over and over again, and yet... The simple question of how these six women were abducted, most of them from busy streets in broad daylight, remains a mystery. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Dr Brian Williams, PhD, is a lawyer fully admitted to the Supreme and High Courts of Australia. He's an author and an educator, and a passionate student of criminology. He spent many years researching the Tainong North and Frankston murders, and his conclusions are finally available for us to read. The book, Somebody Knows Something, on the trail of the Tainong North and Frankston serial killer, is available now, and he joined us to talk about the case. Probably from a professional point of view for the last 10, 15 years, but... Uh, I'm also a child of the 80s, so uh, I remember when these cases came about and I 
know the areas quite well. I know the roads we're talking about. I know the parks. I know all of those sort of things. So it always triggered in me a, a feeling from way back when it occurred that this could have been anybody. It could have been my mother or it could have been my sister as well. Uh, people like that were moving in those similar areas. Uh, so it's certainly something that goes a long way back. And like a lot of people, I would suggest that I, I thought by now we would have had some sort of solution. And the one thing that's missing, we do have a lot of information and we do have a lot of detail. People like Emily have done a lot of work on it as well, but we don't have an answer. Yeah, we do get so confident in our police because they do such a great job and as technology improves and these days we, get, we see a lot of cold cases solved, it becomes sort of surprising when we see a case like this remain unsolved, doesn't it? Yeah, and particularly there's so many angles to this one. There's, we're talking about six victims, maybe seven, which means there's, a, there's quite a number of similarities between the people involved. There's a lot of differences as well. The cold case situation is when we really look at a lot of cold case cases, DNA comes in very heavily. There's a fair bit of conjecture about DNA with this one. It may have just missed the, the cutoff, if, if that's to speak, so to speak. Uh, this occurred 1980-81. DNA was first used in a court case in 1987 in England, uh, 1989 in Australia. The victims here were found, with the exception of one victim, was, they were all found naked. A lot of their possessions were taken. Uh, they'd been left out in, in uh, the open air, which meant that the forensic indicators may have been difficult to find. It doesn't mean it can't be solved because there's certainly a feeling out there that this is still solvable. The nature of uh, historical cases, and I know Emily's looked at lots of them, that uh, I think the 40-year mark, which is where we're reaching now, is, a, is significant. There's still enough around and there'd still be a witness around. There'd still be somebody around who knows something who could provide the vital bit of information here. That window of opportunity can close and it would probably be starting to close by the time you reach 50 years. The likelihood of you solving any crime is quite remote. The answer is always in the file. Ron Idles tells us it's in the file. Now, you say that the victims have a lot in common, but also at sort of first sight, I think, do they though? To me, the victims look so different. I see old mm. ladies, I yeah. see a school girl, I see women of different ethnicity. Can you talk to us about the victims, please? Yeah, I, I can. Look, the And it depends which, which mindset you, you accept. There have been suggestions that we might be talking about two or three serial killers here, mm. but the general consensus of, is that we're talking in all likelihood of one person. So we're going all the way back to Frankston in 1980 when a 59-year-old woman disappeared on her way to a bus stop. All of these people disappeared in broad daylight with the exception of one, very close to their home, only walking 100 metres on busy roads and she just disappeared in, in 1980. And then we had another old lady disappear in August of that year, 1980. That's Bertha Miller who disappeared literally on her way to church on a Sunday. Once again, off a busy road close to where she lived, she was walking to the tram stop to go to the church she'd been to for 50 years, a person of habit. Had never had any issues in her life and now she's disappeared, she's gone. You roll through a few more weeks and then you mentioned the 14-year-old girl, Catherine Hedlund, she disappeared in Berwick. Then Anne-Marie Sargent disappeared in October of that year. 
Narrowmore Stevenson, she disappeared in Brunswick, which was out of the normal zone that we were talking about, and she disappeared about 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So, and then we roll all the way through to 1981, and it appears as though this person struck again because another elderly lady who disappeared in Frankston, similar circumstances to the previous lady, Alison Rook, that's Joy Summers, and her body was found in Frankston as well. So over a period of 17 months, we're talking about six victims there. Some people are inclined to move back a little bit further in time, back to 1975. A, a woman by the name of Margaret Elliott, a young mother, was murdered and her body was found very close to where Bertha Miller had been walking that morning. It is conjecture as to whether or not that one's included, but what you're saying is correct. When you look at the demographics, you're seeing different ages, different circumstances. You are seeing different times of the day, but there's, there's some similarities. And when we look at that, the two Frankston ladies disappeared on a Friday during the day. Catherine Hedlund, 11 a.m., we think 11 a.m. on a Thursday morning, Anne-Marie Sargent on a Monday about lunchtime. It, it tells us a little bit profile-wise about the person who might have been involved. Oh. They seem to have this patchwork quilt of times that they're available. Obviously, I, I always say he, knowing it could be more than one person, but let's just say he for now, uh, is very mobile. He's got a car. He can move around. He can move around these sort of times without raising too much suspicion about himself, either with a, a, people who are close to him, family members or um, workmates or um, work supervisors and things like that. So what that tells us, we think, is that we're talking about an opportunist, mm -hmm. someone who, when the opportunity arises, he's ready to strike. And around public transport, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Seems to be at a bus stop, people going about their business, like Catherine was on her way to her shift at the supermarket at Fountain Gate. So you wonder, was this guy a travelling salesman or a cabbie or...? Mm. And also how this was brought about, because to my knowledge, there was no massive reports about any commotion. So the way a person such as this would get somebody into his car would either be through force. On a busy road, that would be hard to do without raising some suspicion. Some of these young girls had a bit of a feisty enough nature to fight back. There would have been cars going past, and if you see a woman being pushed and shoved into a car, that's quite a memorable thing to see. Uh, but the other way, and, and when we're talking about six of six people, the odds of someone seeing it at one occasion would be quite high. The other way, of course, is to, if you like, trick them into the car. And that seems to be more likely than not what, what occurred. We don't know what the little trick was, whether it was, like Emily said, a taxi driver with a uniform with a bit of a cock and ball story about buses not running or, oh. or somebody who was pretending to be sick and they needed help. You know, all these people were good people. They would lend a hand if someone really needed it. Somehow this person's managed to fairly seamlessly get people into his car and he's off and away. And also we don't have any stories of other women in those neighbourhoods saying, oh, a guy tried to get me to get into his car by telling me da-da-da-da-da. We don't seem to have any failed attempts that have come to... The failed attempts are interesting because, of course, we know a lot about psychopaths because of what we read from America and even we've had some here, of course. 
And it's nearly always a failed attempt that brings it to light. Yeah. We get a description of the car, the person. Well, Ivan Milat, I mean, that's right, a failed yeah. attempt was what really. There have been, um, certainly there's been reports about people offering lifts. Is that so unusual? I think that if we sat here today and said we need to ask people around Fitzroy and Richmond and Collingwood if they've been offered a lift. We'd have plenty of people, so I've been offered a lift. And particularly back then, you know, there was more people hitchhiking. And actually, particularly with the older ladies, I remember as a kid my mum used to often pull over and offer older ladies lifts. I know it sounds insane now, no, but if she saw an older lady walking, if it was hot or rainy or whatever, she might pull over and say, can we give you a lift somewhere? Yeah, and look, all of these people who turned out to be victims here were, as I said, good people. I've gone back through their little life histories and also what they were doing on that particular day. They were not doing anything that would have invited any activity other than just what they were nor- would normally do. Uh, they just seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And three of the victims were found together, weren't they, Yes, Brian? they were at Tainong North. Yeah, that's right. And when we say together, they were within metres of each other and their bodies had been left in a similar way. That was Bertha Miller, Anne-Marie Sargent, and also Catherine Headland. Now, that that tells us something straight away. Whoever did that did them all. We That's something we do know. Some of the differences, though, once again, start to just... And someone out there could answer this for you now, I think. Bertha Miller was put there first. Um, she was the first victim who was left at Tainong, possibly a Sunday afternoon because she was um, abducted on a Sunday morning. That, with that particular site, by the way, this, this is all very lazy. This person didn't bury them. He just covered them in branches and left them pretty much out in the open. The branches that had been used to cover, cover Bertha Miller were was sawn off at the base using a saw, obviously. The two young girls who had been taken during the week, there was nothing, no saw we used then. We were just picking up bracken and any branches we could to put over the top. So that perhaps indicates a little bit more time on on the hands of the person on the weekend. We don't totally know that, of course. Bertha Miller was found, she was the only victim here that was found clothed. All the others were found naked. Having said that, she didn't have her shoes. Her shoes were gone, her bag was gone, her Bible was gone. With all the other victims, all their clothing and little trinkets of jewellery and handbags and money and things, they were all taken and never, ever seen again. So whether or not this person collected those as macabre souvenirs or not, we're not sure. Was Bertha the first? Bertha was the first person who was taken who was found at Tainong. But before that, there was Alison Rook who was abducted in Frankston and found in Frankston as well. Her son was a police officer, wasn't he? Yes, he was. One of her sons. She had six adult children. I was thinking maybe if Bertha was the first, maybe he hadn't sort of gone all the way through with his fantasy or whatever, but clearly he had already with Alison, right? Alison was found naked? It Certainly, yes, she was found naked. And, and certainly if we accept the theory that we're dealing with the same person. Yeah, okay. Bertha seems like a bit of an outlier or unusual victim. I don't know. I just always feel like she stood out in that way. You know what I mean? I, I would say you're right. I'd say she did. And what we know about Bertha Miller, we, we have a snippet of information about Bertha Miller. One of them is that she was clothed and the others weren't. But the other thing is she'd reported at her church in a friendly way that on the tram stop she'd been speaking to a gentleman uh, about her Bible and that there'd been conversations going on previously that person never came forward. Um, we've had a lot of people who were in and around the edges of this case who never came forward. So 
That, through the investigation, when the body of Bertha Miller was found, we're talking here about skeletal remains, they thought they, they'd found a, a skeleton with blonde hair. They thought she was a young girl as well. They just assumed that this was a sexually motivated situation. They then found out they were dealing with a skeleton of a person 70 years of age or older, and the blonde hair was actually grey hair. Mm-hmm. So that certainly at the early stage of the investigation was made it very difficult because you had two young victims and one old victim uh, that they weren't quite lining up, but they were all in the same place. So we know that they'd all fall victim to the same person. And of course, Bertha had a very high profile family member. Certainly, yeah. Who yeah. took a real interest in this case. Yeah, that's right. And look, it, it, having said that, it wasn't something that was grandstanded very much. She was the auntie of Mick Miller, who was the iconic chief commissioner of police for many, many years. He was chief commissioner at that time as well. So a lot of the news articles about her at that time were along the lines that the the auntie of the chief commissioner's disappeared. She was fairly easy to line up. The younger victims aren't so much because, of course, what we know, thousands of young girls go disappearing every year and these people in their 14 to 18-year age group are prime amongst that. But she was about the only person missing at that time when they found the skeleton that matched that age. So there was a a fairly um, quick identification in relation to that. Naramol Stevenson, she's gone missing outside of the mm. geographic range. I feel like she's out of both of the age ranges mm. of the victims. She's 34 years old and also she is out of the ethnic range in that she's born in Thailand and she's taken in Brunswick. So with all of those factors combined, she's very different to the other victims. What makes you include her in the list, even? Yeah. The, the main reason that uh, Naramal Stevenson is typically included in the list is her body was also found at Tynong. It wasn't found for a few years. It was found in 1983, well after the others. And it wasn't found in the same place. It was two and a half kilometres away, other side of the highway. Her body was also left in a similar way to how the other three had been left. Now, that has meant that she's traditionally put in with the the other group. If we didn't, we have to accept that there was another murderer at that time. She was murdered around the same time as the others who just happened to murder her and just happened to put her body in a similar or same place and just happened to do it in a similar way. We're starting to push the boundaries there. And so it Probably with Naramal Stephen, it's, it's more in the case of being much more likely than not that she was included in that group. And look, all of them are personal tragedies when you go through there. And I said, um, my passion for this is that one day they all, innocent people who lost their lives to, to a horrible situation that they, you know, they all died as tortured souls, that we, there's some justice for them. Naramal Stevenson's story, uh, you know, she'd come from Thailand, she'd married here or married over there and come here. She was having difficulty acclimatising. She'd had, a, oh, I guess, an argument that night and she was sitting out in a car in Brunswick, so she's not anywhere near the, the normal zone. Once again, though, that outrider situation, so if, if she's included in that list, this person's also capable of cruising around Brunswick mm. at dawn on Sunday without raising any great issues, mm. someone would have to know something with that. 
Yeah, because even though Brunswick's in an inner city suburb of Melbourne, even now at dawn on a Sunday, it's it's quiet. It would have been even quieter back then. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not deserted. You would think oh, someone... And there were some... With, with all of most of the victims at Narrowmore Stevenson, there was some snippets of information. Mm-hmm. Her husband had gone down to see how she was getting on at one stage and she was talking to a strange man in the street. She said that he spoke Thai. That's all we know. He never came forward either. Someone had been attacked in that street a week or so before. Once again, that never really went anywhere anyway. But she was moving back and forth to the 7-Eleven shop and doing things. But the, the person she'd been speaking to never never put his hand up to explain what he knew. He would be a good person to talk to as well. It just always seems stranger than the other cases in terms of the circumstances, Narimoles. She's just sitting out there by herself in the middle of the night. Yeah, and... Obviously very vulnerable. She's in an area that she's got no idea where she is. She's probably in a town she's got no idea where she is. Yeah, because she'd married a farmer. So, um, yeah, that's yeah, right. So she wasn't used to Brunswick. Yeah, and she was in a disgruntled frame of mind. One, one of the things I noticed about all of the victims, perhaps with the exception of Bertha Miller, is that all of them were a little bit vulnerable on the day they disappeared. And when I mean vulnerable, they'd all been rattled a little bit by something uh, Alison Rook had her car break down on her unexpectedly, which meant that she was rushing to a bus stop uh, and her day had been ruined already and she was in a hurry. So that when people are rattled, their, their defences may be a little bit down. Mm. Catherine Hedlund, you can't say anything about any of these victims. They're just living a normal life. But she was a lovely 14-year-old kid, but she was trudging off to work. She didn't really want to go. She had better things to do that day, which most 14-year-olds would. Anne-Marie Sargent, was trying to get to a CES in Dandenong, but she was unemployed. She didn't have much money, so she was inclined to hitchhike to save money. She wasn't in a particularly happy mood that day. Then you look at Joy Summers, who disappeared in Frankston. She was catching the bus to the shops for the first time ever in Frankston on her own, and she'd had a stroke previously and things like that. So she was obviously a, a little, a little bit on edge, and once again, I made notable, and obviously Narrowmore Stevenson was was in a real sitting duck situation at that point. Mm. She wanted to leave and wanted to get out of Brunswick and, and was in a hurry to do so. And, and she's had a fight with her old man who's upstairs in the flat. It's really frightening, isn't it, to think about the sixth sense this yeah. predator appears to have for these women who, if he's driving past on busy roads and these women are walking towards buses, and yet somehow he seems to be able to sense in them. Well, the the other thing, though, too, is we we don't know who this is, but I suspect someone would have a very good idea of who he is, and the passing of time may make that easier for that for someone to come forward at some point. This person wouldn't cast anywhere near the menacing shadow they would have once if they're still alive. Well, we've got no idea whether they are or not. I think, though, we need to lower our eyes with him as well, and I've written a bit about the profile of psychopathic personality. By that I mean murderous psychopathics. There's lots of psychopaths who are very good at their jobs and have beautiful gardens and things like that. But I'm talking about someone who actually turns it in an ugly way. And look, this person struck me as being quite, he was more dumb lucky than, there's certainly an element in media and, and in film and that that likes to portray psychopaths as some sort of evil genius who are too smart for the police and they've got all these strategies in place where they get away with things. This guy, I think, was opportunistic. He was just dead lucky. He's picking up women and not getting caught. 
he was as lazy as they come. He, he just put their bodies in bushland and covered them with branches and things like that in a hurry. And I'll get back to that thing we spoke about, about the trick. Somehow he's managed to get women to move across that line where they're heading for a bus stop or they're on a bus stop and the next thing they're in a car with someone they probably don't know. That tells me we're talking about a very ordinary person here who doesn't give off any measure of threat at all. We're not, we're not looking for someone who's anything other than very average, but he's got a deep, dark problem and it, it comes to the forefront. There's intervals between these attacks and abductions, which tells me that he goes away and um, sits on it for a while and then he has another urge to go off and do this sort of thing or, or the, the time opportunistically arises when he can do it. I don't think we we should be looking for a, a little devil with horns growing out of his head. I don't think that's what, what we'd be looking for. I think we'd be looking for someone who can do these sort of crimes and then mesh back into his normal life like nothing's happened, mm. um, which is even more scary, even more scary. He doesn't have a neon sign flashing above his head. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, Headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of an article I read recently. I think it was that one by Sarah Krasnostein that was excellent in The Monthly about James Todd, who killed Eurydice Dixon. And she talks about how she has sat in courtrooms and every time a perpetrator is brought into court, how normal they look and generally how small and how inoffensive these people look. Yeah, and that's, that's right. Yep. They kind of have to because when people look frightening, we stay away from them. Mm, that's right. And he's been able to do this 
Many times. Yeah. In order to get close to women many times, you have to look like you're not going to hurt them. Yeah, or you've come up with a sufficient story Yeah. that wins them over or, or changes their orientation. And, and I mentioned before about the motivation for this, you know, why would you study a case like this for a few years? And I, I always think of that horrible moment for these poor women when they they're in areas they know. They get in a car. They think they're in a safe place. They're, they've got every term of reference available to them at that point, and then all of a sudden the atmosphere changes, and they see this, and they they suddenly realise I'm not getting out of this, and it must be a terrible, terrible moment, and it's it's something that's indescribable when you're sitting in normal life to imagine what it must be like. We always get asked why are women so interested in true crime, and I feel like that moment you've just described, Brian, is sort of your your worst nightmare. Yeah, and I feel like we have moments where we think maybe that's happened and then most of us, luckily, have the moment where we realise, no, it's okay. Yeah. But we then think, gosh, imagine for for some women it's not okay. For some women it really is that moment, the moment that you've described. Brian, there have been over the years a few suspects, haven't there? Yes, there have, yep. The bottom line is is that I think we've got to think here about historical crimes there's been narratives, if you like, put out there. There's been stories. But the reality is, is we're now sitting here 40 years later and they've taken us nowhere. They've gone nowhere. So there's no real evidence against any of them. Because there was one yeah, there was, yeah. particular guy who may be alive, still may not be. He'd certainly be in his well into his 80s. But he seemed to be a focus. Yeah. There was no evidence, though, linking him to, to these sort of situations and that's why I'm saying that we could be right off the chart here. We could be in a position where people have been joining dots all over the place and the dots aren't going anywhere. Sometimes the reason there's no evidence available is, can be a bit more a case of the reason there isn't any evidence because there isn't any evidence. <laughs> they, they didn't actually do it. And I, I suspect that if we just keep going over the narratives of the same old names and the same old people that we're not going to the next step and the next step is somebody knows something that would link all of this together and suddenly make it all made a lot of sense. When did the crimes seem to cease? Yeah. Did the perpetrator keep committing these crimes after the bodies started being found, for example? So did he keep doing them when he knew that he'd been discovered? If we accept that they're all from the same offender, definitely, yeah. And there was a, a, a very interesting situation that arose because Joy Summers was murdered in October 1981. Now, that's long after the bodies of Alison Rook and the other three at Tainong had been found, not Narrowmore Stevenson. But okay. now that appeared to be the last offence based on the template we're looking at. And we've got to ask ourselves, why would a person stop? And if we're talking about someone with a psychopathic nature... Certainly my understanding is psychopaths don't retire or take early retirement packages. They don't go on annual leave or anything like that. They would keep offending unless there was some largely intervening event that stopped that occurring. Well, they tell us that they either die, they go into jail for some other offence, or they move and start committing their offences somewhere else. But, you know, I'm thinking of when you talk about that, you know, the BTK killer in America. What I find so fascinating about him is he... Had a big gap. But then when he wasn't offending, he kind of was living his 
normal life. He had a family, but he also had a job that allowed him to be quite menacing and threatening. Appeal yeah. to his yeah. yeah, he was an enforcement officer or something yeah, for Ranger. the Yeah, and I thought and then he starts again. Yeah, and look what I would say is that a person and you've you've looked at the the chronicle of the crimes that he has committed that somebody close to this person would have seen some glimpses of this behaviour behind closed doors or at a workplace or... Because this is quite an intense flurry of activity, isn't it? This- over 17 months, yeah. Well, one of the traits I'd say with this person too, he's not likely to be unnerved because he, he may even revel in the idea that... that um, his handiwork, I, I hate to use that word, but his, um, his crimes are being uncovered. We've got to remember, though, too, that he kept all the clothes of the victims and all their jewellery and bags and shoes and anything he could get his hands on. I, that's always worried me in that I wonder if someone's ever come across a stash of stuff that doesn't make sense, you know, sitting in a garden shed or whatever. That, that all may have went in the rubbish, I don't know, but... A man hasn't got any reason to have a car full of women's clothes and hat bags and things. So it's quite a lot of stuff too. Once it, you mention it, it was a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a lot. Nothing of great value, no. but certainly, you know, he removed jewellery from victims that wasn't found with the skeletal remains. Their bags, none of them were carrying large amounts of cash, but he didn't know that at the time. He obviously went and spent it. Shoes, bags, all sorts of things were, were taken, and they were never found. The other thing that I could say about the Tainong site was just a little bit down that track at Brew Road. Uh, the police uncovered a marijuana crop down there as well. Not linked to this, one wouldn't think, but it had been tended to and watered quite well. It looked like a one-man stash. That person never came forward either. Now, the chances of him seeing a car there, and we're talking about um, somebody driving down this lonely bush road in a car, quite a lot of times. We, we know at least three times, maybe went back a few times as well. Having a little marijuana crop would have been quite a incriminating crime at the time where you might have been scared to come forward wondering what's going to happen to you. I think if you came forward 40 years later now and just gave any sort of description of anything you'd seen, I think that that would be um, taken in a totally different light to what it would have been at that time. As to why this person stopped, that's as much conjecture as the rest of it at the moment and we're waiting for somebody to come forward and I think they could tell you that as well. Did you make any surprising discoveries during your research? Yeah, look, I, I think the one thing I'd always assumed and I remember every now and again some drips and drabs would be coming out about them. I, I'd assumed that we were just talking about one serial killer. There had been several task force look at this and, and different experts have come up with different theories the main one is that we are dealing with one serial killer. There's a possibility that maybe the two Frankston ladies fell victim to somebody separately and the Tynong victims were someone else again and then Narrowmore Stevenson was someone else again. Michelle, you mentioned before, it didn't quite look right. But there's certainly the feeling that there's enough similarities in the cases over a 17-month period to say we're, we're probably talking about one person. The main thing I picked up, Emily, and I wanted to put everything in the one place. When you have a big case like this, it comes through in drips and drabs and the media don't have much time to give detail. So I wanted to put a bit of detail about what the victims were like and what they were doing that day. They were just so incredibly innocent. They were just, you know, often in criminal law, we're dealing with people who have 
if you like, moved into murky circles and moved into murky worlds. And I wouldn't say they're inviting trouble, but they're starting to get close to it. These people were just in their own suburbs and they were just wandering to a bus stop on busy roads in the middle of the day. The surprise for me was that no one really reported seeing anything at all, which told me that, that this person was able to move really, really quickly, really fast and, and had some system in place. System's a terrible word to use, but had some process in place that was obviously he was getting away with and he kept doing it. Yeah, it's particularly painful to think of somebody who would just end the life of strangers, isn't it? A while ago, we spoke to a couple of childhood friends of Catherine Headland, and I've kept in contact in particular with Cheryl over the years, and she she really firmly believes that Catherine would not have got into a car Mm. unless she either knew someone or there was obviously, as you say, Brian, some sort of compelling reason. I mean, I always think, could it have been someone in a uniform? Yeah, and look, that's a very reliable observation from someone who obviously knew her very well. Mm. Look, there were urban myths everywhere. There was talk that perhaps a a man could be dressing up as a woman to trick people into cars. When I looked into that one, my first reaction was that one, oh, you tell me another one. There had been cases of that sort of thing occurring around that time, but it was in reverse. So at Dandenong, which is not far around about the same zone, there was a man or men dressing as women who were waiting for female motorists to pull up, sole motorists to pull up at lights, who would then collapse next to the car. The woman would get out and then they'd bundle them back in the car. Or alternatively, they would knock on the door and tell them they were sick and they needed medical attention. And obviously that was the interchange that they needed. It was profound enough that the police at the time put out a warning to women motorists not to fall for this trick. Now, of course, that's in reverse. That's someone trying to get into a car. We're talking about someone in a car trying to get someone into it. So it's a totally different thing. And I'm not saying there's anything in it, but I'm just saying that when you talk about psychopaths employing tricks, Ted Bundy used to put a sling on his arm and make it look like I can't pick my canoe. I can't, can you just give me a hand with the canoe to put it on top of the van? And while I'm doing that, I'll shovel you into the car and off we go. Yeah. I was thinking of Ted Bundy when we were talking just then. And again, because he was so handsome... And non-threatening. Uh, and non-threatening, yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, there's something in that. You'd hop in a car with an old lady well before you'd ever hop in a car with a man. Remember the stranger danger Definitely. messaging of yep. the 80s? I certainly remember it because it absolutely freaked me out when they had the safety house stuff, you know, about you being careful about anyone. Anyone. And obviously mm. now the education is more that you need to tell children about more tricky people. It's not so much strangers because sometimes you need strangers to help you. But I also remember the case we've been talking about recently of Sean Kingy, for example, who hopped in a car because a woman was in the car with a puppy dog. I've used the word him throughout everything I've spoken about mm. with this, but I've always been aware that him may be they, and it would be a lot easier to bundle a woman into a car with two people. A woman could have been involved, a group could have been involved. We don't know that, but if we go off profiling of psychopaths, uh, there's probably more likelihood it was a sole male working alone and a very, very twisted individual underneath, but not on the surface and was able to keep things going. Is there a million-dollar reward for each victim? Yeah, there is. At the and, moment? And the, the way that, that comes about, though, is it's probably even higher than that. If we, It depends how we take it. For each victim, there's a million-dollar reward. If we work on the principle that you solve one, you'll solve all of them, that 
could be a cumulative sum of $6 million, which is a very high incentive. I would think that if a person come forward, they would do so for a higher power, and that would be because they really realise that after 40 years that there's just been no justice here. They've got tortured families and friends that have just been left in limbo. I'm, I'm not a person who believes a lot in this closure thing. It won't, won't change bringing people back or anything like that. There's no justice here. But the $6 million reward, the police have put that out there, certainly with the message that I would suggest that someone knows something, that this might be the little prod that's needed, combined with the fact that the world changes. What we know is people change and someone who may have been very menacing in 1981 may be dead now. It's important that we go off information. We don't sit back and just wait for cold case DNA or something like that. The challenge of historical evidence is that it can be unreliable without good information. Witnesses die. The perpetrator dies. Geographic areas change. The freeway's now been pulled down and the block of flats has been put in its place and buildings are no longer in the same place. You can't check alibis. If I said to both of you today, um, what did you do three days ago? The expectation you'd be able to tell us quite accurately. If I said to you, what did you do 39 years ago on the 1st of May? I don't think you'd have a clue. And we wouldn't be able to check that because who's going to verify that now? So there's a lot of problems with historical evidence. But in this case, there's one piece of this jigsaw that's missing. It would be suggested that someone knows what that is. We're not thinking of relying on any late deathbed confession or anything like that. Even that can be unreliable sometimes. Mm. But given all the, the little pieces and bits and pieces and the tangled trails here, someone would be able to put it together. I, I, I talk about coincidences and that the coincidences aren't evidence, of course, just as allegations aren't evidence. Allegations aren't proof either. And coincidences aren't necessary. We're talking about people all moving in the same suburbs. Of course, they go on the same streets and go to the same shopping centres. It doesn't necessarily mean there's much in it. But Catherine Hedlund and Anne-Marie Sargent, the two young girls that both worked at Coles New World supermarket at some stage, they both liked horses. One owned a pony and one used to go to local stables. They're into the local disco scene, but I think just about any kid at that yeah. time in the southeastern suburbs would have been grooving away. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we know that Bertha would not have been, but yeah, that's interesting. Whether somebody knows there's some sort of link somewhere mm. that, that hasn't really been explored, um, that could be the case. Do you have a feeling, Brian? Did you develop a theory or different thoughts while you were doing this book? Uh, one of the thoughts I had was, and I probably touched on it before, was that the same narrative has been followed for 40 years now. It's gone nowhere. This person could be right off the chart here. Could be a person who's never, ever gone on the radar, maybe briefly went on the radar and went straight off. The police have done a fantastic job trying to keep this one going and it's been quoted in other works. Thousands of interviews, thousands of pages of evidence, thousands, hundreds of statements. They've done everything they can, but there's just something missing at the moment that would put that together. We have to also think of policing in the 1980s, I guess. We're not talking computer databases so much and things. We're talking about a lot of statements from witnesses, a lot of paperwork, a lot of typewritten reports that are in boxes and things like that. So I know that the cold case, you would have spoken to Ron Eddles at some stage, a cold case expert, that the answer's in the file. Maybe with this one, the answer's not in the file. Oh, yet. don't say that. <laughs> Don't say that, Dr. Brian. It's always in the file. But then again, it could be. Yes. It just seems to me so weird. It's like 
if we go by the thought it's one killer, it's like a serial killer of real significance. Yes. And different victim ranges. I just can't believe it hasn't been solved. It's scary That's it. to we, me. We get, to, we get so confident in the idea that the answer's in the file. As you say, maybe it's not. Mm. Is it possible that someone could actually do this so well? They say you can't plan a perfect murder, but sometimes you can stumble upon it and actually, you know, pull it off. But to do it six times is quite unbelievable. And there does seem to have been a number of cases at the 30-year, 35-year mark. I just saw on um, ABC that a man had been arrested. His wife had disappeared 30 years ago and he's been arrested. I mean... Oftentimes we do see that someone was interviewed early in a case and for whatever reason, you know, wasn't followed up on or, you know, that people did phone in with tips early and, you know, because it was manpower in those days, it was hard to connect tips and follow up on things. Yeah, and we can't rely necessarily on the forensics of this one. No. A lot of cold cases rely on DNA. There wouldn't be any, would there? Well, the police have been coy about that, and I support that in that they've got to have something up their sleeve that no one else has. There's a possibility that there's some sort of DNA, but no clothing, though, but left out in the open for so long as well. We're not sure, but it would still rely on some information that comes forward anyway, one would think. And there's family members, as you say, still alive, like siblings. Naramol had a son, didn't she? She had a son and a daughter. Catherine, certainly, I know I had a bit of dealing with her boyfriend at the time, and he has been left really traumatised through this since oh, yes. he was a he'd spent young the man. With yeah. her and-, and he was sick and he didn't walk her out to the bus stop and he felt really guilty and it's not his fault, you know. It's a terrible thing. Brian, let's solve this. Well, I won't solve it, but the message is, is that I think someone can. Yeah. And if we can do our little bit to twig a conscience out there somewhere to just provide that vital bit of information, there's $6 million sitting on it. I don't think the incentive can be any higher, but certainly the what's at stake can't be any higher. 40 years might have passed, but these crimes haven't been forgotten and we shouldn't forget them. The message we should have is that we're just as keen to see them solved now as what we would have been 40 years ago. Absolutely. You can always go to crimestoppersvic.com.au to get more information or to leave a tip if you have one, or you can call one 800 which is Crime Stoppers. If you have some information, thank you so much, oh, thank Dr. You very Brian much. Williams. And thank you for just staying interested and on behalf of the families. I know that that's always everyone's biggest fear, isn't it, that people will forget and yeah. lose interest. That's Dr. Brian Williams, whose excellent book, Somebody Knows Something, on the trail of the Tainong North and Frankston serial killer, is available now. Thank you to our patrons, Adele Thorsby, Olivia, Lainey Maloney, Chelsea Cronin, Sam Gillespie, Sarah Hopcraft, Kelly Gale, Rebecca Lewis, Rebecca Burdell, Annika Dawkins, Sarah Kale, Cherie Stubbs and Tara. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.